Before we start, if you could say your first and last name to make sure we pronounce it right and give your pronouns, that would be great. So I'm Paula Byrne. And what do I say? She, he. She, she, her. <laughs> she, her. People often, do you know, people often call me Bren, Bryn, not Byrne. So I get that. Or people will spell it Bryn, be what, instead of Byrne. So I get that. I get that. And it is annoying. Welcome to the first episode of Shelf Healing, UCL's bibliotherapy podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Markwick. Our guest today is Dr. Paula Byrne. Paula is the founder and CEO of the charity Relit, the foundation for bibliotherapy. Relit researches bibliotherapy and offers help and suggestions for reading as therapy. Paula has a doctorate in English literature, is a fiction author and a successful biographer with subjects including Jane Austen and Evelyn Waugh. Paula has also co-edited a therapeutic poetry collection with Jonathan Bate. First question to get us started is nice and easy. Do you feel that reading is therapeutic? Ah, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely, I do. Um, and I think it's really fascinating that there have been some interesting recent studies about the importance of reading for creating empathy, that the, the ability to put yourself into that mind and head and indeed stand in the shoes of other people is greatly enhanced by the reading of literature. I'm also really interested in the idea of reading for solace, and for comfort reading, I think sometimes people are really snobby about reading for solace as though it's something to be ashamed of, um, or indeed reading for pleasure. Um, and I think if you scrape the surface, most people would say they are exactly the reasons why they began the study of English literature was because of, of, of comfort and pleasure and intellectual solace and intellectual enjoyment and all of those things that reading brings. So for me, I can only speak for me. I always think those two words are very important. I can only speak for me, but for me, ever since I was a child and was obsessed by reading, it's always been my haven. It's always been my my safe place. And I think in a world where mental health is becoming such a huge issue, we need every tool in the kit, as it were. You know, I think the more tools we have in the kit, the better. So Yes, I do firmly believe in, in the importance of reading um, for, for all of those things. So what type of books do you reach for when you want to relax or gain solace? Well, you know, when I was ill, I always, P.G. Woodhouse is always my port of call if I'm ill, like always, always. And that goes back to being a child. And my mum would say, oh, you must always read P.G. Woodhouse when you're feeling poorly because you can't stay miserable. And And I think it's what is interesting about P.G. Woodhouse and people like, say, Jane Austen or indeed Barbara Pym is the cre- creation of a sort of sustained world where you, 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 know, you know those characters intimately. They do become, as Jane Austen said, like old friends. And so there's a sort of a safety in that world. It's a world of comedy. It's a world where you know there's going to be a happy ending. And I, I just think there are some times in your life when 
there is just nothing wrong with that familiarity. I mean, other times we want literature to do other things for us, but I think there is a time when in times of, of anxiety, and let's face it, we're in the middle of a pandemic, those worlds become really important to us. And, and I've noticed that, you know, just on social media, when I engage with people, so many people are saying that they're turning to people like P.G. Woodhouse, Barbara Payne, Jane Austen. It's quite interesting. I'm fascinated by what is it about those readers um, that continue to inspire us, but also continue to give us great comfort, just as Jane Austen was read in the trenches, for instance, that soldiers would read Jane Austen. They'd take copies of her novels in their pocketbooks, they could fit into their pockets. And I think also for you know the anxiety and stress of being in the trenches and what you're fighting for, what are you fighting for? You know, the idea of sort of England. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons why people read, but I'm fascinated in all of them. So so yeah, I find myself certainly very recently you know it is like meeting an old friend you sometimes don't want the surprises <laughs> um you just want to sort of re-engage and I think even from Jane Austen's time you know they would talk about characters like they were friends and it feels like English literature is like been really moving away from that that it's somehow sort of vulgar and somehow crude to treat books like old friends that, you know, we are literary theory sort of broken down a lot of that pleasure because it's just a text. I think kicks itself in the teeth, really, and, you know, done itself a disservice because I think most people, if you ask, would probably have similar reasons as to why they devoted their life to reading. So, I, yeah, absolutely. I'm, you know, I'm writing a new little book about Jane Austen and Solace. And I've taken like a straw poll from re- readers of Jane Austen, just trying to pin down what it is, what, what is the bibliotherapy value of Jane Austen. Why do people turn to her in times of, of grief? And so with some really fascinating results. It's funny you should mention P.G. Wordhouse. I, I'm rereading Much Obliged Jeeves right right at this very moment. It's my before bed book. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it just never gets old, does it? It just never... Also, I just do wonder the laughing, you know, laughter is such a, a comfort and a panacea. And I think, you know, P.G. Wordhouse still makes me laugh out loud. I mean, right ho, Jeeves, it'll never date for me. It's, it is my favourite. And it just the humour, and I think... It's like a valve, you know, it's like a safety valve just goes off. And, you know, I don't know the biology, but like with tears that calm you, you know, laughter also, it can, you know, it can give you permission to sort of feel calm. And and so I think for me, I really understand it'll never get old. It will never get old. And I think those books, they kind of don't date for me. Also, I think comedy is very underrated. Sometimes I think we talk about the great novels, you know, Tess of the D'Urbervilles, for instance, or Portrait of a Lady. And somehow there's almost sort of a, a bit of a literary snobbishness about comedy. And you think, gosh, I mean, Jane Austen, these perfect comedies, are, you know, better than most things I, I will ever read. And same for P.G. Woodhouse, because it's very intricately plotted. Um, P.G. Woodhouse, it, it, it's hard to be funny. It really is. Really hard to be funny. It's hard to make people laugh, and I think it's hard to make people laugh out loud. But I, I don't know about you, but I still laugh out loud with PG Woodhouse. It just feels so good. Yeah, every time, every time. <laughs> and you've sort of almost answered my next question, which is: What is it about these books that keeps you coming back? Um, is it the plotting, or the comfort of returning to old friends, or sort of that sense of nostalgia? I mean, I do think I'm a real fan of rereading. I just think that I can never understand people who say, oh, I've read that 
but you know, and, and, and I've read it once because for me, I just I can't get in that mindset because, or particularly with the great classics, which I'm such a fan of. But to me, I I never really fully understand a book unless I've read it three or four times because, and particularly with people like say Jane Austen and to some extent um, P.G. Woodhouse, all my favorite authors, you always find something new. You know, you go back in the rereading, and so for me, it's not always the familiarity of the characters. I can understand. Lots of people seem to say that when I've taken the straw poll about why they reread Jane Austen in times of stress and anxiety, and a lot of people sort of like the familiar characters. That's not always the case with me. I actually really, or if I'm particularly thinking of Jane Austen, say often it's just a line that I haven't seen before and it's it's a bit like going to see a Shakespeare play with a brilliant director that just has made an actor read a line that you know you know before but suddenly you think oh I never understood that line you've just made that line everything now makes sense it can just be a simple line of verse or prose and you just suddenly go oh and so I what I like with that is you know going back over some of the the sort of pearls of wisdom or the beauty of the rhythm of a line or the the way that the sentence is constructed or the perfect sort of comic timing of it so I think for me it's always more I am I'm an avid close reader so I think more the character and plot I'm a bit like even more like that don't interest me quite so much but I, I do like I do love looking closely at a particular sentence and then just thinking that's such a well-written sentence. What what is it about that sentence that is is so great? So I think for me it's that. But it's so different for everybody. We all have, you know, different reasons for returning to classics or or reading or Diary of a Nobody is another one that I that's one of my fallbacks. I love the Diary of a Nobody because it's so funny and it never dates. It just that human never ages. Not for me. And and it, but yeah, I think it's more for me that close reading. I would say nice. Are there any books that have profoundly affected you? Oh, many, many, many. I mean, I think I do. I mean, Henry James's Portrait of a Lady, I do try to reread every year. And I try to reread Anna Karenina every year just because I love them so much. And I, I read them both when I was very, very young, too young to understand them, to be honest. But I just had I'd read so much by the age of like 13. I just kept I was just looking for new things to read. And so I probably didn't understand them the way I do now. But I I do. And again, it's you know, you're returning and seeing those things that you might have missed on a first, second, third, fourth reading. But I would say, you know, my comfort reads are 100 percent, you know, as I said, Woodhouse, Jane Austen, Diary of a Nobody. So I do find myself turning to comedy, probably. But if I want to be really sort of stretched, there's nothing like Anna Karenina for stretching. <laughs> Very true. Even just keeping track of everybody's names in that book is hard work. I let alone you know, the Levin books, the, the philosophy in Levin's, um, you know, it's, you do find yourself sometimes skipping over a few pages, don't you? But I'm working on Hardy at the minute, Thomas Hardy and Women. And so I've been rereading the whole of Hardy just right from the beginning um, in chronological order. Some of those early Thomas Hardy novels I didn't know terribly well, Pair of Blue Eyes, The Woodlanders, and they're so fantastic. And again, I wonder whether it's a sign of maturity that I'm able to come back to those novels that might have seen a little bit superficial. It's not like reading Tess or Jude, but in fact, they're just gems, you know. 
so it's been really great for me to sort of re reread these books that were not familiar to me and and sort of see the seeds of those great later great works of Thomas Hardy. So that's been incredible. So I'm always looking. I mean, I'm not brilliant on contemporary novels. I mean, I'm not. I'm. I'm. Very, I'm so steeped in the 18th and 19th century. I think if I've got the time to read, sometimes I think. I don't want to read a contemporary novel, but I'm trying. I'm definitely trying to read more. I mean, I love those novels of the 1950s, Elizabeth Taylor, but I've just written a a biography of Barbara Pym. And her entire canon, oh my goodness, if you want comfort reading, oh, it's just superb. It's so funny. It's so brilliant. Um, And she was a writer of the 50s writing about female experience. I mean, I'm very drawn to, to novels about the female experience, I would say. What drew you to bibliotherapy? And so for me, it was, again, it was really personal because whilst I've always believed in literature's power to inspire and console and, and educate and all those things. And I always turned to literature. I was always in my own little world of books. But what really inspired us to start the charity was um, our daughter, who was five at the time, lost her kidneys and was very ill. And we just spent a lot and very unexpectedly out of the blue. And the first night that she went into hospital, I just happened to have a poem in my handbag, which I just kept reading. And it just got me through that night when they said she's going to die and she didn't die, but they thought she would. And so it was a case of without that poem, it was almost like I just kept repeating this poem and then spent a lot of time in hospitals. Well, until she got a transplant and touch wood, she's doing brilliantly now. So, and I always just was really shocked by the death of good reading material in hospital wards. It was just, you know, another dusty pile of Hello magazine, which you just really don't want. Sometimes you do, but sometimes you don't. And often you don't, in my experience, when you're waiting for a child to come through an eight hour operation, you know, I was just always so shocked by the fact that there, there were no books and, and, so there was that, and I always thought, gosh, I'd love to get a sort of volume of poetry in every hospital ward for, for parents like me. And then I just had a, a, an experience of stress, which manifested itself in like really bad pains in my fingers and my hands, which meant I couldn't write. And I just went to see a very enlightened doctor, GP, who said, ah, oh, it's, it's, this is stress and, and you're really stressed. And, 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 and he, he went to write a prescription out and I said, oh, I don't want sort of sleeping pills or anything like that. You know, I'll deal with it. And he said, oh, no, I'm prescribing you a book. And I just thought, wow, that's really interesting. And he prescribed um, a, a, two books, actually, a book of haiku poetry and a book, uh, and a mindfulness book. He said, as soon as you walk out of my, my office, it, it, it will go away. It, it, it's you know you're you're just you've got yourself so anxious and I went out and it went away and I never got the pain back but I just remember walking home and thinking gosh if more healthcare professionals were more creative about anxiety and stress instead of just throwing pills at people it's fine if you need pills obviously I would take them if I needed them but a they don't always work or b they can be the wrong things and also they're very expensive and I thought it's quite cheap reading a book poetry doesn't really cost much and and for me it just sort of reignited my passion for poetry it really made me think about reading poetry slowly it really helped me to calm down so it my relit came from that sense of being relit by by literature and and I just thought this could be really helpful and and so that's what we've been doing going to schools and to prisons and to hospitals and encouraging people to 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 look at the benefits of 
slow reading, particularly, we, we do tend to emphasise um, poetry and slow reading because it's kind of bite-sized. It, it's not like reading Middlemarch, you know, and, and when people are anxious and depressed, they often lose concentration, sometimes lose concentration, whereas a sort of line of poetry is very focused and it can be just almost like saying a prayer or like a mantra. And so it was sort of, it sprung really out of personal experience, but all connecting the dots. It was all about, well, I do believe in literature's power of healing. It's an ancient idea. It goes back to, well, to Milton, even to the Greeks, that the idea of reading is, is medicine. And it's the oldest medicine of all, really, reading. So it's it's not a new idea, but I think sometimes the old ideas sometimes are the best ideas. Yes. So obviously you set up Relit and like you said, you you go to schools and to prisons. Do you try and give people the tools as well as the books in order to get the most out of this idea of reading for your mental health? I mean, we do, I don't do sort of literacy classes because there's quite a lot of people, particularly in prison work, who do literacy because there is a big connection between lack of literacy and and crime I never went down that line I, and also I really don't believe in patronizing people because I think that anybody can understand Shakespeare if it's taught properly so I was always very firm in my beliefs that if I'm so I, I worked at a prison with category b male offenders in, in Grendon it's a rehabilitation prison and I was absolutely adamant that we would look at plays like Othello because many of them had killed their own wives and I was I was I was going to confront that head on and they loved it. And I did poetry. We did Robert Frost, The Road Not Taken for obvious reasons. We did some haikus, but I was never going to patronize people and say, you know, we're, we're going to just, you know, I just wouldn't do that. I think people need to come away and feel like, yes, I, I've, I've learned something. I can take something back with me. And I never, so many people, because you start going around the room and go, have you ever read any Shakespeare? And they, no, no, no Shakespeare. And by the end of it, they're hooked. It's a marvellous thing to see. So I've always been very much sort of, yeah, give people the best. <laughs> don't patronise people. And I'd always say, don't worry about intellectually getting it. You know, try and just feel it, feel the rhythms of the prose. And, and I would act out bits of, say, Othello. So because I say, you know, this was meant to be seen in a theatre, not meant to be read. And the results were phenomenal. Like every single time, I, I don't think there's a single example of somebody saying, oh, you've lost me or, oh, I don't like that. It's not for me. And maybe we were just lucky, but I, I just don't think anyone should be patronised. I, I thoroughly agree with that. I, I tutor a lot of GCSE and A-level children and focus a lot on poetry and Shakespeare and, and find that they, they understand it when you read it and you try and say, well, imagine this was now, you know, listen to the words. Don't worry about all of the analysis. Just listen to it. What does it make you feel like? Because I feel obviously classes these days, they're, they're quite large and there's a limited time to get through everything. There's that, that tension, I think, of analyzing. Whereas, especially, I mean, I adore Shakespeare. There's so much that you can get just from listening to a really good piece of, of Shakespeare being read aloud. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. Is there a particular aspect of bibliotherapy that interests you the most? It's quite interesting. I just read a really a marvellous memoir by a Yale, ex-Yale professor called Priscilla Gilman, who it's called, I've actually got it in front of me here, actually, funny enough, which I didn't mean to have at all, called The Anti-Romantic Child, A Story of Unexpected Joy. And it's about, she was a Yale, is a, was a Yale professor who loved Wordsworth. 
and loved the way that really Wordsworth really sort of created the concept of childhood, really, because before Wordsworth, nobody really wrote about childhood in the way that he did. And she gave birth to a very severely autistic child and just was so sort of shocked by by this and, and couldn't understand and, and her whole notion of childhood and motherhood and all of that was challenged. But Wordsworth got her through, you know, it, so she would find herself just just turning to, to Wordsworth. And it's a beautifully written book. And and I just I just wrote to her to say that anyone who had an autistic child, I think, would benefit from reading that book. It's so beautiful and it makes you see autism, I think, in a very interesting way. And she said, oh, I teach bibliotherapy classes. And and, and, I, and so we're kind of, bit, we've been in touch. And I don't like the idea of prescribing a book for a condition, which I know some bibliotherapists do. I don't really like that. Having said that, I think if somebody had an autistic child, you know, I would give that book and say, you've got to read that book. Um, so I'm kind of interested in, in, in autism and dementia. I'm interested in how bibliotherapy can reach people who are locked inside themselves. So another story, I interviewed Melvin Bragg for our online course, and he tells this story about, you know, when his mother had very severe dementia, he couldn't reach her at all. But the only time he ever really connected was when he would read Wordsworth again, funny enough, Wordsworth. And when he recited Daffodils, that part of her brain connected and she could recite it perfectly. And and it was very moving because it's also very moving for the carer because the you know with his mom she was very locked in her world but and that can be very frightening for for dementia patients they feel really scared so the calmness the soothing the repetition all of those things can be comforting but it also connected with a bit of their brain that that hadn't been affected so I'm getting increasingly I mean I'm interested in all aspects of bibliotherapy. I mean, I began with stress because I think so many of us suffer with stress. So I began with, and I'm I'm not talking about full-blown depression because I'm just not an expert on that, but I'm talking about low-level stress, if you like, and how reading can help with staying calm. But I'm increasingly, as as I know more about bibliotherapy, I'm sort of getting very interested in other aspects of of how the mind connects with literature. And and so, yeah, it's evolving, in other words. (laughs) That's really interesting, especially the dementia aspect. We've got a guest coming on soon who is a strong believer in memorising poems, again, for the the importance sort of in, in later life that that memorising, not only does it give you comfort, but it it keeps your brain functioning well, that it's a separate part of your, your brain that memorises those poems. So that's really interesting. They used to call it learn by heart when I was at school, but in a way it is, it's in your heart, you know, and learning by heart means that. And I think perhaps if you learn by heart, it does. I mean, I can still remember we were taught by rote when I was at school and I can remember large, large swathes of, of poetry because I learned it by heart, like learning the times tables. It stays with you, doesn't it? It's a really odd it's repetition as well. And, and I'm, I am very interested in, in rhythm and repetition. It's like children loving nursery rhymes. They find it very comforting to read the same story over and over again. You, know, you read a child a story and they go again, and you read it again and they go again. And you think, 
Why do they want it again? You know, but there's got to be some sense of comfort in in repetition and in rhythm. And that's why we say nursery rhymes as well. You know, it, there's something aesthetically pleasing about rhythm. So in this little book I'm writing about Jane Austen's solace, I'm very interested in the rhythm of sentences and how that can make us feel calm. And she often writes these sort of tripod, like the dum 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 sentences, which is very Dr. Johnson, very Johnsonian. He would often do things in threes. There's something about things in threes for some reason. I don't know the science, but it it just feels comforting. (laughs) So to me, it's just endlessly fascinating. Do you think that with COVID-19 and in the UK, we've had, we're on a second lockdown now. Do you think that might have drawn more people to read therapeutically? I think there's good evidence of that. I mean, you know, I, I on social media, I, I do a lot of Twitter and, and I often do book chat because I think Twitter is great for book chat and also for recommending books that you wouldn't otherwise see. And also I connect with a lot of my writer friends on Twitter that I don't see and we can share sort of ideas and stuff. But in the course of that and talking to readers of my books, so many people have written to me saying, oh, I read your book on this and it really helped me. Or I just read your Stressed on Stressed anthology of poetry. Priscilla Gilman, who I just spoke about, who wrote the Wordsworth book, she immediately bought our anthology and said, I'm giving Stressed on Stressed to all my friends. It's brilliant. So it seems that, yes, I think people are. And there's a lot of support for independent bookshops. But I don't know if I just follow these people and then I've got a distorted picture. I don't mean, you know, if I, if I, I just follow very bookish people. So I mean, it may, may be distorted, but I like to think that, you know, more people are, are reading in lockdown. And I think they are because what there's not people do get fed up with television. They get fed up of. But then some people I've heard say, I can't read during lockdown. My brain's gone. Some people said I can't write during lockdown. So I think it does. It does really depend. Personally, I've read. Well, I read loads anyway, but, you know, I probably have read more for solace in lockdown my children teens read i've been reading a lot and i think they've read more in lockdown so i mean do you think have you had experience of people reading more in lockdown do you think i think so i've noticed more of my friends who have been working from home have been setting aside their commute time for reading or listening to an audiobook on their walk where, which they walk instead of do a commute, they, they go for a little half-hour wander and they'll listen to an audiobook or they'll sit and they'll read because they didn't want that time that's usually taken up by commute to be taken up by work. Oh, that's brilliant. I'm, see, I'm such a fan of Audible and all those because, you know, I, I just think, as you said before, just listening and if you get a good reader of a favourite novel, it is such a joy. And again, like you said before, you know, when you listen to books, you you hear things different. You hear that, that line's really interesting. You know, I think often when I have, because I love Audible, I hate wasting time and women multitask, sorry to generalise, but we do. And like, <laughs> well, I'm sure, you know, men do too, but I, I multitask and I don't don't like to think I'm wasting time. So if I'm just wandering, I do like to have, and I notice when you see people jogging, so many people have earphones and I do I always wonder to myself, are they listening to a book or are they listening to music or are they listening to, and podcasts are massive now, aren't they? Which is fantastic. So there's, a, I think it's lovely that people don't want to waste that time that they would spend commuting. Um, my son actually reads a lot, uh, loves listening. He was raised by, you know, audio books because we, we were so busy with my daughter's illness. I was like, go and listen to another book. And he really loves, and it used to be his comfort. He would always put an audio book at bedtime. 
Um, so I mustn't generalize about about those gender stereotypes because he was one who really does love he loves hearing good readers. Also, my son came to reading late. I think and now never you know is a complete bookworm, but wasn't for a long time. But he always did listen to books, and I think and now he wants to be a writer. And I think it's given him a good ear. And my youngest son, I keep saying, you start with audiobooks if you find it difficult. Start by listening to books. I think there's so much to be said for it especially for the older, more heavy reading books, War and Peace, for example, where it's much easier to keep track of what's happening and who's who with a good audiobook. In relation to that, I, I listen to audiobooks and I also listen to cast-based audiobooks, which there's a lovely company called LibriVox who do a lot of out-of-copyright and it's a volunteer-based thing, so people will read. And there's a lot where there's the, there's some beautiful Jane Austen read on there and there's also cast ensembles reading those classic books. And I find I like listening to both. Wow. LibriVox, I'll pop it in the show notes for anyone else. That's amazing. I love that idea. I didn't know about that, so thank you for that recommendation. You know, it's in I I support um there's a there's a theatre company called the Sun and Moon Theatre Company, and they've been going through very difficult times because of COVID. What they've been doing, what sounds very similar to what you said, they've been doing cast readings. They began with Pride and Prejudice and they they read the entire novel over 24 hours. And I've been appearing as a sort of guest, a guest person to talk about Pride and Prejudice and, and, and the importance of reading aloud. And they also do it as a cast. It's fantastic. So do support them if you can. I think they do they did Emma and maybe persuasions next but they're basically doing it as a fundraiser to help declining theatre companies who who have who can't make can't make a living and it's just brilliant to hear the different voices and to hear you know people getting into the into the heads of those characters that you know so well and giving it and these are just these are readers they're not actors they're people who love Jane Austen and also it's global so you get all lots of different accents and you get you know it's just a fantastic thing but I haven't heard of, of that so I will look out for and it'd be very good for yeah, for children. So you've said that, well, obviously we love Jane Austen. Who doesn't love Jane Austen? But also it's the comedy aspect that calls to you. Do you find that there's sort of a, a, a strong divide between when you read poetry for sort of therapeutic reasons and you reading those comedy books? Well, I say comedy books, those those books with excellent comedic writing. Do you find there's a divide? Do you go for very different types of poems or are you drawn to poems which have that element of comedy? I think that's a really good, really good and interesting question. And I haven't been asked that question before, but I think the answer would be no, because I think when, when I read, I think poetry does seem very different in terms of bibliotherapy, because what, what I always think with poetry, it's concentrated language in concentrated form and it demands concentration and focus, I think. Every poet, those words are very carefully chosen. And I sort of go to poetry really for that kind of inspiration, although that does bring solace too. But I think when I read Jane Austen, it, it is slightly more for comfort, more for the sort of comedic value. Because one thing I don't really like is comic poems, interestingly. And I haven't really realised that until you've asked the question, because we did include a couple of comic poems in the anthology and Stressed on Stress. And I don't really like them, but you know, we we there were four of us. We had a GP who um, prescribes poetry. There was me as a writer, and then there were two academics. And the four of us, we just sifted through all of the poems that we we, we wanted to get to hundred to find the poems that we thought would be best. And there a couple of the, the groups said like really insisting on comic poetry, and I'm like, I, it really doesn't do it for me. So I probably do like 
poetry that is more emotional or, or perhaps more more demanding. I'm very interested in a 17th century poem called Catherine Phillips, and she's fantastic. There's one poem that she wrote. She'd had 17 miscarriages, and then she'd finally, and it's called On, on the Birth of Hector, My Rosebud, or something like that. And she finally gives birth to this baby, and then and the baby's perfect, and the baby dies. It's so poignant and it's so modern and it's so fresh. I think it was written somewhere like 1621, maybe a bit later. I can't remember off the top of my head. But I've used that as a therapeutic tool for grief. And it never fails to resonate with people. It's very cathartic. It's very emotional. And you, it just also makes you think that people are united by poetry over centuries, that you're part of this community. And I think, you know, people still felt as badly about miscarriages back in 1621 as people do today. Your emotions don't change just because infant mortality rates were greater. The pains, I don't believe the pains any different. And, it, and if you've lost 16, it's unimaginable to us, isn't it, to have lost 16 babies. But so I insisted on that poem. So I think if I'm feeling emotional or upset, I tend to go to those poems. It's almost like a cathartic thing for me where anxiety is better for me. Again, it's just always for me. You have to keep those words like, what what is it for you? But for me, if I'm a bit just a bit gloomy or low or in need of cheering up, yeah, I would go to the perfect comedy novels and you're instantly laughing in, in minutes. But does that make sense to you? And I don't know whether you feel the same, but I think that's why I think I'm very wary of prescribing books to people. Because somebody who had, say, an autistic child might not like the anti-romantic child. They might feel angry with it. They might think that's not my experience. I just think you have to be a little bit careful with the recommendations that you give. And I know some bibliotherapists just do have a prescribed set of work for, you know, if you're suffering from anorexia nervosa, read this. And I think you have to be so careful. And you have to be careful about harm. I'm always conscious of you can literature harm. I think it's really important that we look at whether it can it can have harmful effects. And I know the doctor that is on our team, he trains medical students at Oxford, but he would say when he when they teach their courses on depression, he would always use Sylvia Plath's a bell job because he said you could you can teach as much as you can, you can give as much pamphlets and leaflets. But when you're teaching medical practitioners, he felt the best way to get inside the mindset of somebody he was suffering from acute depression was to teach the bell jar. Now, I love that. It may not work for some, you know, I mean, he would do that alongside the theories and all of that. But I just liked, and he said over and over again in the evaluations, the medical students said, oh, that was one of the best classes. And, and the same doctor, he when he taught Alzheimer's to his students, he used to take them to art gallery. There was There's a famous artist who drew a self-portrait for 14 years at the onset of dementia. It's just heartbreaking because you see how it feels to be inside that person's head and how they begin with this particular portrait and each time the portrait is changed. And this is where I think arts and humanities can really help Help. I'm very into medical humanities and I and again the teaching of empathy for, for students that to get in literature can give that they can make you or help you rather than make you enable you to get inside the head and that's empathy and that's I'm very very interested in these new studies on empathy which are coming out a lot from medical humanities institutions where they're saying it's about teaching empathy and avid readers tend to be more empathetic people that's that's the that's what they're saying it's because from a very young age, you've put yourself in that mindset of somebody else. 
I think those studies are really fascinating. I think more work will be done on on that aspect. And I think that can only be a good thing for medical humanities too. I agree. I feel like that's very important um, and very interesting. I'm, I'm going to have to go look up those studies. Do you feel that bibliotherapy like is on the rise? Do you think more people are sympathetic to it? I hope so. But I'm, I'm hopeful. I mean, we're, we're pushing this project this year to try and increase sort of the awareness of bibliotherapy as helping with your mental health and your mental well-being and your mood. It, there is an epidemic of anxiety and mental health problems amongst young people, and that's not going to go away. You know, that is not going to that is only going to get worse, I think. And I think, again, just a tool in your kit is what I always say. And I say to GPs, have this as a tool in your kit. Have bibliotherapy as a tool in your kit to, to give to people. And the doctor I was telling you about, he would put poetry all around his waiting room because waiting rooms are very anxious places. And, and also, you know, you, you know you've got 10 minutes and you know you, you, know, you, you sit there and you, you think about the narrative of your problem and what you're going to say. And you're it's so stressful. And then you see these leaflets on the wall and they make you feel worse because you think, oh, if I got this. So he would put poetry and people would steal the poems which he loved and then they'd come back and say oh doc so you know I, I stole this poem but and he'd say no keep it keep it keep it um, it was actually a little charity called poetry in the waiting rooms that would do this and put poems around and it made a huge huge difference to the ambience of the waiting room so I'm very mindful and I see it with my children and my children's friends that so many suffer from anxiety. I mean, it's it. So many do. It's it's inc- it, it does feel like a, an epidemic, you know. And, and COVID's going to make that worse, not better. So again, I just think give it a try. You know, use it as a tool in your kit. It may not always. It may not work, and you may not be able to concentrate, and that's fine. But you will feel better. And I, I think Matt Haig. You know, Matt Haig is is a great. I think reasons to stay alive is. I give that book to everybody. When my son had a very bad bout of depression recently, my eldest son, I gave him the Matt Hay book. And that's one I give to so many people. I think he writes brilliantly about depression. And my son said that helped enormously for him. So I think so. I think what you're doing is fantastic. That's why, you know, I did really want to help and support it because I think it's absolutely, it's crucial. It's crucial what you're doing. And I think spreading that word and, and, and letting young people know that there is solace to be had. There is help to be had in reading. So it's brilliant what you're doing. I've just looked at the time. I've taken up so much of your time, Paula. Oh, don't worry. Don't worry. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you so, so much for coming on. That's been really very eye-opening and very interesting. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's it for this week's Shelf Healing interview. I'll be back next week with another one. Goodbye. Thanks, Nicholas Patrick, for our music and to Luke Montgomery, who does all of our transcriptions. Mm -hmm.